0: Hello and welcome to the Forbes India Cover Story Podcast series in association with TheIndiaCast.com. My name is Abhishek and uh, this one is a special issue given that we are closing in on 2013. And the package of stories in this one covers a range of subjects from the art market to Isro's Mars mission. You have the food security bill. You have a little something about football, cricket, politics. And joining me on the call to talk all about it is... Peter Griffin, the editor of Forbes Life India, who also edits the non-business sections of Forbes India, which also makes him the man in charge of this fun-filled year-end issue. Hi, Peter. How have you been? Long, long time.
1: Hey, Abhishek. Yeah, we wind up talking once a year, right, <laughs> whenever we do this issue.
0: Yes, and each time it's a little more different than the previous year. You've been doing it every year since we've started recording the podcasts. And before we even get into what's in store for our readers, can you please go back to the days when you put your head back and planned this issue with your team over our- coffee and the occasional beer, I presume, and what are the, some of the important things you considered while shaping this one this year?
1: Well, the first decision to take was would, would we continue the format that uh, we had done in the last few years. Once my editor-in-chief, Mr. Jagannathan, was convinced that we should, next step was then to decide on how much of the format we keep. So the format we've used in the past few years has been that we have a sort of an appetizer and a dessert that follows the basic format of a magazine. You have specky things to start off with in what we call the front of the book. You have more leisurely, uh, relaxed reading you know, dessert for the back of the book. But in between, you have your main course, your well, which is the reason why people buy that publication or you know, go for a meal. You go for that main course. So as in past years, we decided that we'll stay with the format of having our front of the book and our back of the book be composed of lists Looking back at the year past and looking ahead at the year to come. And for the well, he said, even more so than in previous years, it's a good time to ask big questions about what's looking ahead. There's so much about India that's been in a state of some turmoil. You know, the economy has been stagnating. Obviously, in an election year, political stories and political questions, you know, the ones that are going to be sort of occupying much of the public thought. And then we look at the big questions, and for the big questions, most of them, we tend to go out for those, for those answers to domain experts in various fields or people who have been commenting on those fields for a long time. An important part of this issue is it's probably the only issue in the year where every single person in the team is contributing something or the other. There are other times, you know, when you have a good story, you're working on it, you're working like a dog for like two weeks, three weeks straight, and then the next issue, you take it a little easy, perhaps you won't be, you know, because you work so hard, your editor won't push you to have another story in there. You may have a little relaxed time.
0: It's a beautiful place to work in then. In India, then you can get away with the fortnight by working your ass off on in the first one. After filing a, a, a longer, piece. Not,
1: no, no, no. Let us not commit to that kind of thing
0: because
1: my editor in chief we, we might we might beg to defer on that one. I'm sure yeah,
0: there because quite late in the night. We will not get into those details now, but Peter, you spoke about the main course or the the well where you are talking about the different questions. Could you talk a little bit more about the medley that your well is and some of the questions that you have gone out and asked?
1: First and foremost, uh, I think for most people and you don't even have to work really hard to guess what will the big one be. It will be the ministerial question, right? So you have the thing of examining Mr. Modi's chances of becoming Prime Minister, there are a number of other leaders that have come up during that time. For instance, the wild card of Kejriwal, who everybody was expecting to be merely nuisance value. He was going to eat into the BJP's votes and he was going to eat into the Congress's votes and make it uncomfortable for them, but no one took him seriously. And then suddenly the man is going to be leading the government of the state of Delhi. Raj Deep Sahas, so sense and Swapindas so Gupta have looked at the question of leadership, you know, the Modi question and, and the larger question of the leaders that are coming up. Then we have, you know, the question of it's been a year in which jobs, you know, dried up a little bit. People are looking yeah. around and saying, even if you're unhappy in your job, you look around and say, but now, but where will I go? Because there are not that many jobs around. So we asked Manish Sabarwal of TeamLease, right, yeah. will it be the year when jobs return? We haven't stayed merely with business and with politics and current affairs. We, for instance, asked the lawyer and activist Flavia Agnes about whether this last year has been the year in which women's issues, as they used to call them, have come to the, you know, the front of public consciousness. People are talking a lot more. But as cases that have come up in the, later in the year have revealed, it's pretty much fighting an entrenched mentality in so many ways. Though we passed a law in early 2013, which was only notified in December. But now that there is a legal framework there for prevention of harassment in the workplace for women, will a lot more women be coming to the fore and using this law? Will that stop people from taking advantage of high office? for instance, or their ability to influence or intimidate women that they work with. Another big question that came up again, which was completely not to do with uh, business, was the Supreme Court's rejection of the Delhi High Court's earlier reading down of Section 377, where, once more, sexual acts that are not what they call the approved version of uh, whatever, you know, man-woman for the purpose of procreation kind of sex, so a whole lot of other sexual acts became illegal once more.
0: What do you make of that, Peter? Because Forbes India had run a cover story on uh, LGBT, that is a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community uh, a while back, and it was quite a depressing scene, and this judgment. What are your views on, on, on this subject?
1: My personal take? Well, I don't think it's the business of government or governments or society at large to decide what we can and can't do, who we can love, And who we can't love, who we can consummate a love with, with a physical relationship, is not the government's business. And that is not just about, you know, love between people of the same gender. I'm talking about, for instance, caste. The the Krap Panchayats who say that you can't marry within so-and-so, or the communities and the religions that say that you can't marry outside this boundary. All of these things are not the business of government.
0: Your comment very appropriately smacks off one by the former Prime Minister of Canada. I can't pronounce his name properly. I guess it's Mr. Pierre Trudeau. In one of his interviews, he said this about homosexuality, and I quote, uh, he said that the view we take here is that there is no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. What's done in private between adults doesn't concern the criminal code
1: what's done in private yes and mm-hmm. to add a little bit that between consenting adults like rape is not consent or sexual relationship that arises out of say office pressure because a woman say feels that she can't say no or a man feels that she, he can't say no because x would sack him otherwise or his position would be miserable in office all of those are non-consensual.
0: On the same vein Peter you spoke about how you edit the non-business stories and how this issue is also filled with a bunch of them you've got to quiz Mr. R. Sriram the founder of Crossword Bookstore on uh, literature festivals in India, whether there are too many or too few. Now, what's your opinion about what does a literature festival do and uh, why is it important to be covered in the first place and uh, why should they matter and are there too many or too few?
1: they an old friend. We've Ah. known each other for a very long time since Crossword was a single store in Bombay when I first met him. Subsequently, he and I curated the Color Literature Festival in Bombay together for about six or seven years. So we go back on that as well, and we stayed in touch. He's been a friend and an advisor on other things, you know, the the writing community that I help run and questions of publishing. One of the most generous-spirited men I know when it comes to sharing his wisdom and his knowledge. The entire question of looking at literature festivals, Yes, see, it's the time of the year you know, now, going into you know January, uh, when, of course, it peaks with the Jaipur Literature Festival. But now you have mm. festivals in different parts of the country, and indeed in the neighborhood as well. There are three literature festivals in Bombay. There's Little Light, there's the Tayotioi Carnival, there is the Kalagoda Arts Festival, which has a literature festival. There's a festival in Bangalore, in Pune, Calcutta. The One year there was a festival in Pushkar, there was Pune, there is Trivandrum. Goa Delhi has a couple of festivals that are to do with uh, non fiction that is i think just going on a little while ago every little place suddenly seems to have a festival and if you do the festival circuit per se you'll wind up seeing a lot of the same people at different places part of what the literature festival is is it gives authors a platform on which they can interact with people just because the same guys are appearing at different places is not a reason why to say that he's there's too many, because authors do need to go and promote their books as well, and they need to be talked about for people to want to read their books, which gives them the income that lets them write more books. From the audience point of view, a Jaipur is of course the peak in terms of number of people and a lot of people from out of Jaipur also end up there because it's such a big festival but say the Hay Festival in Trivandrum or the Bangalore Literature Festival or the Hindus Festival in Madras, a lot of the people who come there to listen, to chat with the authors, to ask questions, to get their books signed, are locals. We're not going to be traveling off to Jaipur, and we're not going to be traveling off to Calcutta for the APJ Festival or whatever it is. So for them, it's a chance to meet and interact with authors, to see the authors they wouldn't normally see, or they would read about only because of Jaipur or something like that. It wouldn't be surprising to guess that Sriram thinks so too.
0: Fair point. And on the same thread, moving on, you you also have a piece by Mr. Stephen Murphy of Christie's. Now, it was a big event that happened very recently where Mr. V.S. Gaitonde's painting was sold at the inaugural auction for 20-odd crore rupees. But more importantly, it was well-received by Art Connoisseurs. Now, what does this mean to this fledgling industry, Peter, and its many, many artists in India?
1: The fact that Christie's is here and Christie's is a name that's synonymous with the art auction, though that's not all that they auction. The fact that they're here in conducting a live auction means that they take India's art world seriously enough. Christie's been here for some time. It's been here for 20 years, something like that, in some form or the other. But they've conducted online auctions in, in the past in India in the last few years. I think the revealing thing here is that there was one set of paintings in this auction lot that were deemed national treasures and therefore can never be sold out of India. Those paintings went for just above their reserve prices. There wasn't an enthusiastic bidding among them, which to me is a sign that the buyers who are also buying as long-term investments in addition to, say, liking the artists, are of the opinion that outside India, the investment won't continue to appreciate on international standards. They'll be restricted to buyers in India. And so it leads me to believe that they think that the Indian buyer does not have enough cash to pay a much larger price for this so they won't be able to sell it for much higher so they wouldn't bid that much higher
0: there is a lot of logical yes. reasoning that goes behind buying art uh, i'm sure uh, and some of it might that's, be, uh, that's just
1: my amateur opinion i don't know <laughs> enough about art
0: sure
1: sure. <laughs> okay the 50s interview will tell you a lot more about what they think
0: yes and hmm. uh as abrupt as it might sound since we are flitting from one topic to the other for lack of time one of the favorite essays that i found from the package was the one by Mr. K. Radhakrishnan, who is the chairman of ISRO. First of all, congratulations on getting him to write an essay, especially after a significant event that took place where we have a mission to Mars. And uh, given that we possibly will pull that off at a fraction of the cost of what other countries do, it's a big, big achievement. And what does he have to say very briefly?
1: You know, there was also a lot of flack. Why is India spending money on sending a rocket that will go orbiting around Mars? And ye and wo, you know, shouldn't we be solving poverty and ye and wo? And wouldn't that money be better off here and there? And that kind of argument. And um, what the author of this piece is telling us is that there is gain to be had. That up to now, the satellites that they have launched have orbited the Earth, and that is it, right? So at most, you had to take care of being able to reach a satellite that was. Uh, a small amount of distance away from the Earth's surface. They expanded that range when we sent off the Moon mission, where we went and banged into the Moon, right? That probe traveled 400,000 kilometers, a significantly larger distance than anything else, and they had to keep control over that. And now you have a satellite that is traveling a total of like 1,700 times that. This one is going to go 618 million kilometers away. And they've got to keep control of that satellite. They've got to adjust for the fact that communication, even when sent at the speed of light, is traveling such a vast distance that it's going to take a little time to get there and then a little time to come back for your feedback loop to complete.
0: Oh, that little time is 20 minutes, Peter. That's quite a long time, isn't it?
1: Yes, exactly. And therefore, your satellite has to have a certain amount of, let's say, independence of thought. It should be able to make some decisions on its own. And that has been a step up for them when it comes to design to give that satellite that little bit of autonomy. It also means that their own future satellites, even if they are restricted to being operating on Earth, then you could see this developing into perhaps a range of smart satellites. You know, satellites that won't just wander around the Earth, but will actually make decisions on what they're supposed to do based on a certain amount of information they've been fed, rather than just blindly orbit the Earth in a geosynchronous or, you know, stay in a geosynchronous orbit and relay the data, here's a satellite that could perhaps go out there and actively have a brief and go and get information and make its own decisions, and that could be a significant gain from deciding to throw this piece of metal at Mars
0: fair point and the last part Peter and I, I think it's a good time to wrap it up with deserts as you like to call it that is the the back of the book or you know the lists uh, if you could take us through a few lists that Forbes is known for and some of your favorite topics that we can end this podcast with the Forbes brand is synonymous
1: with lists but these lists are not they're not the weight and depth of, say, the rich list or the celebrity list, which takes months and months of research to do. These are something that you can, with a fair amount of just a little bit of research, some talking to the right people and having the right reporters on the job. For instance, my colleague, Rohan, talks to a lot of people who work in starting up new businesses and he works on an issue later on in the year, usually the, you know, the hidden gems issue that we do and things like that. There's a list on hot startups to watch. It's part of his beat. But here yeah, he's doing, what he's committing himself to is take a certain number and say, these five you should watch. The colleagues who, say, follow real estate, say, Samar Srivastava, looked at the most expensive real estate transactions of the last year and, you know, why they were such a big deal. My colleague, Praveen, spoke to a number of consultants and got us a piece on currencies to watch in the year ahead. Those are snappier, little lighter lists. There is a list on big global events, you know, things you should go to, like, say, you know, you need to be at the World Economic Forum. This will be the year, incidentally, since we're talking about space, that one of our probes will be going beyond the orbit of Neptune. So that's an event that will happen during the year, That, though it's not an event you and I can buy a ticket for and go and, you know, be part of. But nevertheless, it's, in a, it's a significant event. You know, serious ones as well. What are pieces of legislation that are pending with our parliament that will could have an effect on our lives? What are big decisions that are pending globally? Things like, for instance, just to take one random example, uh, what is the effect going to be of the U.S. pullout in the Middle East, or whether Scotland decides to become an independent nation or not? Whether there's any effect for us, you know. So those are the current affairs and business leaders. At the back of the book, as we call it, the life section of Forbes India is what I usually is the only part of Forbes India you know, that I handle 100%. It's a set of lists which are more, which are the non-business, non-current affairs, non-political so to speak.
0: The best part?
1: In my opinion, it's the best part because, I mean, that's why I do it. It's the part I enjoy doing the most. I'm sure that some of the reporters may, or may not agree with that one, but it's my personal interest and, you know, it's the reason I was hired for this publication and the first place to handle that. So, I mean, I state my bias up front. Meenakshi who is one of our frequent contributors, goes to a lot of films that she sees on the circuits, film festivals abroad, she's on various juries, So she picks five Indian films to watch and five foreign films to watch. And in the past, she's had a good record on choosing, I mean, you know, Ship of Thesis was one of her picks a couple of years ago. The colleagues at Overdrive Magazine put together a set of really hot vehicles that you can look forward to in the next year. We like pulling in foreign serials and watching them. You've had the thing of the Serial 24 being adapted in India. So we did a little thought exercise in, you know, we picked a few television serials abroad that we think could best be adapted to India.
0: I'm looking forward to that one. I haven't read that bit. Any guesses? There is one called Grey's Anatomy. For some reason, my sister, younger sister, is, is a big fan of... Uh, and
1: I am going to have to disappoint your younger sister I, in that case. Not on the list.
0: <laughs> I'm happy it's not on the list, but it might just make for a very great emotional drama type thing for the Indian audiences. But go ahead. I would love to have The Office converted into uh, an Indian uh, program, but I'm not sure who can pull that off. But, but For instance, just to give you
1: a feel there, we, uh, have you watched uh, Under the Dome?
0: I'm afraid not.
1: Under the Dome is an adaptation for television of an old Stephen King story where a small town in America suddenly has a dome land on it, a dome that is impermeable. It lets in air and water, rain happens and that, that kind of thing. But no one can get in and no one from inside can get out. And so it becomes a micro environment in some ways for the people within. And the first season of Under the Dome finished a few months ago. And it occurred to us when we were talking about it in the office that it's the perfect reality show really. I mean a lot of our reality shows are just that. You lock people up in a, in an environment in which no one can get in and they can't get out until of course they're evicted. And within that pressure cooker atmosphere you watch how people react. That was one of the, uh, the television serials that we thought could very well be adapted to an Indian context without losing out too much. What was the other one? Uh, Breaking Bad. And We wondered whether Breaking Bad should be on this list or not. We spent a long time debating that because, yeah, at its simplest, Breaking Bad is a story of what happens to a man who believes he's doing things for his family and the deterioration of his own, the way his values change over time and all of that. What do you think? Do you think it should be on the list or not? Have you seen Breaking Bad?
0: I know the plot around which it's built. If you replace meth or any of those you know, addictive substances with something a little more congenial for the Indian audience, I think it'll be a super hit. I think it's a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> it's this 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 issue is going to take some reading in the sense that you have to be sitting back in a relaxed state of mind over a weekend, especially in the New Year's, and just, you know, browse through the the various different topics that are covered.
1: We look at them as being something that we hope the reader will collect. You know, we look at them as collector's editions or collector's right. issues, so to speak, being something that hopefully the reader will want to keep aside and look at again in succeeding years because there's value in it and not sell it to the waste paper guy right away.
0: I'm I'm sure that's not going to happen with this one. Thanks a lot, Peter, for for your time, as always, and it was fun talking to you.
1: Always fun to talk to you, Abhishek. Thank you very much. Have a great Christmas and New Year season. All the very best for the next year. I guess by the time you're doing your next podcast, we'll be into the New Year, right?
0: (laughs) Very much so. So
1: let me take the chance then to say to all the people who are listening, on behalf of everyone in Forbes India, Uh, You know, greetings of the season and may 2014 be really great for you. Happy New Year.
0: Thank you. And all you listeners, you can get this podcast on ForbesIndia.com and also on iTunes and uh, comment away on what, what you've heard. And again, Happy New Year to all of you.